0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is God's word.
1: For the past uh, month, we've been looking at elements and dimensions of what it means to be a Christian. And this passage really headlines and teaches foundational truths on which this church was built and based, uh, planted on. So uh, I'm going to set the context for you. See, in verses 1 to 3, you have what? The tax collectors, the sinners, they drew near to Jesus, and the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, these people, these men, they're grumbling. And, And so Jesus tells this parable as a result. You have, think about this, You have the tax collectors and the sinners, they're the irreligious. And then you have the Pharisees, on the other hand, they are the religious. And Jesus is speaking to both groups of people and he's speaking to them in public. And so that means that this lesson, the truths that come out of this lesson are for everybody. That's why it's foundational, it's for everybody. And what this passage shows us is that at the center of the Christian faith, it's not a set of teachings, but there's a story. Now, if you're new or if you're visiting Metro Presbyterian Church here this morning, if you come to just hang a little bit and talk to people here, you'll find that everybody here, just about everybody here has a story. They have a story of how they came to rediscover the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to invite you to walk through this story with me today. The story begins with this comparison and contrast of these two sons. And uh, verses 11 to 12, it begins with the younger son asking his father for his share of the estate. Evidently, this man was wealthy, and he asks his father for his share of the estate. Now, in a typical Jewish estate, the father's wealth was always centralized around the elder son. We have the laws and the principles of primogeniture. The eldest gets uh, the lion's share of the wealth because the wealth, there were no banks back then. They, they centralized the wealth around the eldest son, and he had the power then to distribute the wealth among other people. And so it was very customary, almost typical for the eldest son to have almost up to two times the wealth if you had two sons. But one thing's for sure. Neither son would ever ask the father For their share of the wealth, for their share of the inheritance, because to ask for the share is to say what? I want you dead. To ask for your portion of the inheritance is to say, I want you dead. I'd rather you dead than alive because I want what you have. I don't want you. That's really what this person is saying. To ask for your share is to say, I want the things that you have. I want the wealth that you have. I want the things that you could provide me, but I don't want you my relationship with you is merely a means to an end and so this father he would have been taken aback at the least he would have been astounded by this he might have been angry about this the younger son could have been kicked out of the house for this but he wasn't he wasn't kicked out of the house and this this would astound the listener if you were a listener in that day if you were a religious person a pharisee if you were a tax collector and a sinner on the other hand you would have been astounded. Both sides would have been astounded. And that's really the intent of a parable. The whole point of a parable is to astonish the listener in Jesus' day. The tax collectors and the Pharisees, no doubt, were astounded. They were astonished by this request. But What's all the more astonishing is what? The father actually honors this request. He actually gives the younger son his share. He divides the estate between his two sons. Literally in the Greek, that word there is he divides his bios. The word bios is where we get the word biology. It means life. Everything that you need to sustain life. We're living in a traditional agrarian culture in these days, in those ancient times. There's this very close linkage, almost a harmonious relationship, a symbiotic relationship between a man and his land. The land represented his wealth, the sum of all that he has. The land represented his retirement income. The land represented his life. The younger son was basically saying what? I want you to tear your life apart for me. I want you to tear it apart and give me my share. What an insult. What an insult. And yet, what's astounding about this passage is the man does it. The father actually does it. The father is enduring the worst thing that any person in this world could ever endure, rejected love. You take somebody, everyone's got somebody in their mind, somebody that you love more than anybody else in this world, and imagine being ultimately, ultimately rejected by that person for the one that you love the most. For this father, his son was more important than all of his potential, all of his earnings, everything that he had, all of his land. That was his sons. His sons were his bios, and yet... He was gracious at the son's request. So the younger son, he leaves home and he goes to a distant country. In verse 13, it says he wastes all of his money. He squanders all of his wealth uh, through uh, wild living. And what happens? There's a famine. A famine hits the land. And the younger son, he's in a foreign land. He's dissociated from his family. He's got no family. And so he's got no wealth. And he's got no more friends. He's totally homeless. He has no food. And, 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 and so he's eating with the pigs. Well, he longs for the food that these pigs are eating, that he's tending to. And then you get this amazing verse, verse 17, pretty much the turning point of this text. While he's in the mire, while he's in the mud, it says he comes to his senses. Literally in the Greek, it says that he came to himself. He came to realize who he is. That he doesn't belong where he is right now. He realizes who he really is. And so he adopts this plan. He's got this plan. He scripts it all out. He's going to return home. He's going to confess to his father, verse 18 to 20. He says, "Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men." He asks to be a hired hand in ancient teachings. If a family member betrayed you, if a family member wronged you in a grave way, you need more than just an apology. There's no single apology that can account for what this person has done. And so you need to make good for this. You need to make good on this. The son may never be accepted again into the family, but he can pay back what was lost. He can earn back what he had squandered. In other words, this son, he's thinking, I have an opportunity to go back he understands just enough about his father. He says, I can go back to my father and I can say, I'm going to earn my way back into your graces again. I'm going to earn my way back into the house again. Make me like one of your hired hands. But what happens? There you have a father sitting on a roof. He sees his son from from far off. He runs to his son. In ancient Middle Eastern culture, the father, the patriarch, the esteemed man, he would never run. It was considered an undignified act to run at all. He runs to his son. He, be, he picks up his robes. He bares his leg. He runs to his son. He embraces his son. He kisses his son. And the younger son, prompted by this act of love, prompted by this kindness, begins the speech. He begins his script. He says, Father, I sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son and then all of a sudden he's cut off. He's completely cut off. And he's not able to finish his speech and the father says this, quick, get the best robe. It's the father's robe. That's the best robe. Get the best robe. In other words, I am not going to wait for you to clean up. I'm not going to wait for you to earn up. You're naked, I'm going to cover you. You've lost your honor. Look at you, you are undignified. I'm going to give you my ring. Your feet are tired. You come a long way here. I'm going to give you my sandals. You're hungry. You're starving. Look at you. You're emaciated. I'm going to put together a feast for you, a feast in this household, one that's never been experienced before. What's he saying? What's Jesus saying? Jesus Christ is teaching that there is no depth of dignity that God himself would not sacrifice or would not transcend for you. The story doesn't end there. You have the elder son. He's out in the field. The elder son comes close. And he hears this music. And the elder son is angry. He's upset. Why? Because of the cost. Because of the cost. The younger brother comes back. The servants say to the elder son, they gave him a calf. They, they took the fat, fattened calf and they slaughtered it. And he's throwing a party. And the elder son says to the father, you gave him a calf in ancient times, you rarely ate meat. You rarely ate meat. It was a delicacy in ancient times. And so if you think about it, a calf, if he's full grown, he can give birth to many other calves. It can make you wealthier, future wealth. This is your investment, a calf. And, and this, younger son say, this older son, he says, I never even was given a goat. To celebrate with my friends you took the fattened calf you took our retirement you you not only gave him his share of the estate which he squandered you gave him our future estate you gave him our future investment you sacrificed our future for this son of yours how dare you waste the money like this this is my share how dare you do that i should have a say in this I should have a say in this matter. I have some rights here, don't I? I have some rights to decisions, don't I? I have some right to these things, don't I? This is my share of the inheritance. This is my stuff he's taking. The estate was already divided up. Verse 29. The son doesn't appeal to his father. He doesn't say, Father, come on. What are you doing? That's not what he says. If you look at the language, he says, look. Literally, the text implies, listen, you. Look at me when I talk to you. He's insulting his father publicly. He's insulting his father publicly. He's bitter. He's spewing out poison, he's angry. Why? Because this estate, the wealth has been diminished. First by the youngest son when he squandered the wealth, second when he's returned. He didn't understand the father's heart. And so he makes his father come out of the banquet to meet with him. He wouldn't even go in the banquet. He makes his father come out of this great banquet that's been prepared. He insults him verbally. And so he makes his father uh, look like a fool, and the father, he's so gracious. He's just so gracious to his son. He says to the elder son, I still want you to come in. I still want you to be in the banquet. He says, anybody else, any other father would have disowned you by now, but I love you. He says, son, everything I have is yours. He's actually right. Literally, that's true because he he divided up the estate. He says, everything I have is yours. And then the parable ends. The story remains open-ended. That's it. But there are two major lessons we're going to learn here today. And those two lessons are foundational lessons about what it means to be lost, foundational lessons about what it means to be found. Two great lessons. The foundation of what this church has been planted on. It's going to redefine our understanding of God. It's going to redefine our understanding of sin, what sin really is. And it's going to get to the heart of God, God's grace, what it means to be found. That's the title of the sermon, right? First, this is going to teach us about lostness. What this passage teaches us about being lost. And it begins first, we have to redefine who God is God is a father, God is our father. Jesus Christ, over and over in the scriptures, throughout the gospels, he refers to God as his father. But this passage defines what he means by the father. When we think of father, what do you think? We think about the word patriarch. We think about the head of the house. We think about the decision maker, the authority, the disciplinarian. If you look at this text, it's astounding because you don't see that in this text. The patriarch in this text, from the beginning, endures pain. From the beginning, endures emotional rejection. From the beginning, endure, endures the tearing apart of his heart. Here's a man of power, the symbol of authority and majesty. And yet, what do you see? You see him loving. You see him suffering. you see him longing for his son. He runs to his son. You see him longing for his son. He comes out of the party, out of the banquet for his elder son. He's longing for his son. He's tender and he's meek, and he's gracious. No one's ever described God this way. Not a Muslim, not a Jew. Not a Buddhist, not a Hindu. Look at the personal, look at the very deeply personal character of God. Look at the deeply relational character of God. Look at the deeply loving heart of our Father. Jesus says God as our Father. Now, the second thing, this redefines our view of sin, redefines our view of lostness. In the younger brother, brother, what do we see? The traditional view of sin. A very traditional view of sin. He's insulting his elders. He's rebelling against his elders. He's carousing with women, with these prostitutes. He's self indulgent. He's dirty. But in the elder brother, we see a much deeper definition of sin, a much deeper definition, a radical view of sin. Think about this. Both brothers, both sons, wanted their father's things. But not the father. Both sons rejected the father. You know, when I grew up, I was taught that this is the parable of the prodigal son. But which son is that title maker, that subtitle maker, talking about? Because this is a parable of the two prodigal sons. It's about the two sons. Both rejected the father. Both brothers used the father to get what they really wanted, what they really loved, at the cost of the father. Both sons pursued status. Both sons pursued wealth. Both sons pursued power. Both sons pursued approval and acceptance with friends. He says, yeah, I did not even got a goat to share with my friends. Both of them wanted to show off and, 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 and be able to display who they were with their friends and have friends. Both of them wanted acceptance. The younger brother, he did it by being bad. That is our traditional view of sin, by being bad. But the elder son, much more subterranean, much more subtle, He demonstrates his rebellion by being good. He demonstrates his rebellion against the father, his rejection of the father in his goodness. And here's the rub. Both brothers are lost. The younger son is lost because he's bad, because of his badness. But the elder son, he's lost because of his goodness. And how do you see this through? Both sons are merely using the father to control their own lives. And that's their own lives. That's an irony. The irony here is that the younger son, the bad one's the one that actually got back in. The bad one gets to music. The bad one gets to calf. The bad one gets to party. What is Jesus telling us? He's subtly implying that it's actually easier in some ways for the bad son to be able to get back into the house. The younger son, you never, the story ends, the older son is still outside. It ends open-ended. It's a question. And this is really uh, crazy if you think about it because the good son, he was lost not because he rebelled against the father with his badness. He was lost because of his goodness. He says, I've never disobeyed you. I've always served you. I've slaved for you. He's moral. He's religious. He's self-righteous. He says, everything that I've done, he says, everything that I've done, I've never done anything bad. I've never shamed you. I've always honored you. He's moral. The Pharisees, you know, they're astounded because they never saw a God like this taken aback. They never saw a God like this, like a father like this. And the sinners, if you were a tax collector, if you were a sinner in those days, you would have been absolutely astounded. Why? Because you never saw a God like this either. You never heard of God like this. The religious, they say, I'm dutiful. The religious say, I'm moral. I'm good. That's what the religious say. The irreligious, they say, you know, they pursuit is, their pursuit is what? Self-indulgence, self-discovery. Each side says, this is the way to find yourself to be acceptable, Jesus Christ responds in a radical way. He says, no, both sons are lost. Now, if you think about this, Jesus doesn't say the gospel is in the middle of these two extremes and you have this pendulum that's swinging back and forth between religiosity and irreligiosity and the gospels in between. So as long as you are moderate in your lifestyle, that's what makes a Christian. That is not what Jesus says. I want to make sure that that's clear. He does not say that it's the middle of these two lifestyles. You can't mistake that. It's not a pendulum swinging back and forth, and you're in the middle. Jesus Christ says, "Look at both sons. They're both equally distant from the Father. They're both lost. Look at the younger son. Why does he get the music? Why does he get the feast? Verse 17, "He came to his senses. He says, "What am I doing here? I've been lost." I have a father that is wealthy beyond compare, and at the least I know just enough about my father to know that he would at least hear me out here. That's what he's saying. He uh, he realized he's been looking for a home where there's no home, and so he abandoned true potential. He abandoned true options and true freedom. He's trying to look for, uh, I'm going to look for my options and potential and freedom, and so he lost his options and his potential and freedom, and so he's homeless, and he realizes I'm lost. I'm living like an orphan. I have a father. I have a father over there. What is sin? Sin Jesus clearly defines this here. Sin is being distant from the father. Whether you are good in your goodness, whether you are bad in your badness, Jesus not look at the type of sin it is. Any sin is defined by being distant from the father. Leaving home. Living like an orphan. And so this son It leaves him poor, it leaves him empty, it leaves him hungry, it leaves him tired, it leaves him naked. And the father, he instantly sees that when he returns. You know what anger is? Anger is leaving home. Anger is saying, God, I had a plan in my life and God got it wrong. God got it all wrong in my life. What are you doing? You're distant from the father. You know what anxiety is? Anxiety is leaving home. It's a type of leaving home. Very subtle, but it's a type of leaving home. Because what you're saying is, I don't trust that God will do it right for me. I don't trust that God is for me. I don't trust that God will get it right. Because I only see one way that this could all work out. And that's the only way I see it. And I feel like God is not, what if he doesn't? And you don't trust God, you're distant from the Father. Anything that takes you away from the Father, anything that takes you away from intimacy with the Father, trusting in the Father, living in the grace of the Father, being blessed, being in the Father, that's leaving home. And in all these cases, you're desiring things without desiring the Father. What do you pray for? What do you pray for in your private world? What do you secretly long for that you wish? You say, if God can just give me this. You want things, but you don't want the Father, you see? You want, things, you want the blessings of being in the Father, but you don't want the Father. That's what you're saying. And you know, you want to know how you left home? You want to know how you know you left home? You want to know how you know you're distant? Because you don't just one day wake up and and come to your senses like that. This son, that's not the way it happened for him. There was a famine. When something happens that makes you realize, I'm poor. When something happens and it makes you realize, I'm hungry. That's when you know. The youngest son, he's a son. He realizes he's a son, but he's longing for the food that the pigs are eating, these pigs that he's tending to. What is sin? Sin always promises to increase your options and potential and freedom. Sin always promises that if you go for this, if you work for this, and you're going to work for this, and you're going to do all the things to make yourself more human, and you know what happens? It always ends up making you less like a human. This son is living, and he's longing to be like a pig. It makes sin always makes you less human. How do you become more human again? You have to come to your senses. The son realized that he's a son. The son had to realize that he was a son. The son realized who his father was. He says, my father has wealth. My father has power. My father will receive me. I'm going to work my way back to him. He knew he was flawed in his view of the father. His theology was flawed. But it was just enough to bring him back home. By the way, this is how most of us view our relationship with God. We're like the younger son. We feel like when we've done something wrong, we just need to work our way back into the Father's favor. In fact, that's why some of you are here at church today. If that's your view of the Father, you're still very far from home. You're still very, very far from home. Growing up, I was taught that the younger son was the sinner. He's bad. I was taught in Sunday school, don't be like this younger son. you got to be like the elder son. You, <laughs> if, you have a, if you have an Asian Sunday school teacher, that's the reason. Because they're going to tell you, you got to be like the elder son. He's dutiful, and he's, and he's good, and he obeys his parents. But think about this. If that's how you view this story, and a lot of us got tripped up over the years growing up because we were brought up this way, this is how you view the story. You will always be angry, and you will be angry at God. You will always be anxious. You will never trust God. You will never trust God with your life. And you know what it's like to never trust God with your life? You are going to be out there without a map looking for some country to increase your options and potential and freedom. In fact, that's why most of us come to the city. And you're going to do that, and you're going to squander your life. That's what this text is saying. That's sin. That's the heart of sin. You're always going to be angry. You're always going to be anxious. You're going to be comparing yourself to other people, and it's going to bring you up when you're better and down when you're less. You're going to feel like a famine has hit you. When you're surrounded by people who are better than you, it's going to feel like a famine. You see? That's what's going to happen. And if you believe that, if you believe that you need to to work up to God's favor, I need to obey in order to be accepted, it's going to be the source of such tremendous strife in your life because you're always going to be angry about this. And you're never going to know where you stand. You will never know where you stand with God, which is what's going to make you anxious. And that's why you have to produce, and that's why you have to be fruitful, and that's why you have to serve. If that's the basis for why you do any of these things, it's going to make you a very jealous, envious, covetous, angry person if you're good like the elder brother, you're going to become angry like the elder brother. You see? You're going to serve and you're going to burn out. You're going to serve and you're never going to really understand the heart of the Father, and you're just going to be really uh, going through a mechanical relationship with God, and it's going to be like this about everything in your life. And what's going to happen is it's going to result think about the elder son, what he wanted. He's saying, "I've always obeyed. I've never disobeyed. I slaved," he says. He says, I worked really hard for you. I slaved. In other words, what he's saying is, you never even gave me a goat. And look at all these things I've done. What he's saying is, you owe me. You owe me. You see, he wanted the things, but he didn't want the father. He wasn't thinking about his relationship with the father as something organic. It was something that was so mechanical. It was all about give and take. And that's what made him angry. What this, younger, what this elder son is saying is, I deserve better, don't I? I stayed. I'm home. I grew up in the church. I deserve better. He's saying, serve me, love me, notice me, accept me, give to me. Very, very far from home. Very, very distant from home. Every complaint that we have is us standing outside, hearing the music, and yet not wanting to enter in. Do you see that? Look very, very carefully at the elder son. In verse 29, he never appeals to the father on the basis of his relationship with his father. Well, he does, I guess, in some way on the basis of his relationship, but it's not an organic relationship. He never appeals to the father on the basis of his love for the father. He says, I slave for you. He calls himself a slave. He doesn't say, I'm your son. I'm your elder son. Isn't this mine? Aren't you my father? Haven't I honored you and haven't you honored me? Isn't there this love relationship and that's why I'll go in with you? That's not what he says. That's not how he appeals. He calls himself a slave and he says, I've obeyed your orders. That's how he refers to his father's orders. He says, I've obeyed obeyed your orders. And he doesn't even refer to his brother as his brother. He says, when this son of yours, he completely dissociated from the family. You see that? And he never left home. This son never left home. He can't even call his brother his brother because he's jealous and he's angry. Why? Because his love is so mechanical. He never left home, but he's so far from home. He never lived apart from his father, and yet he's so apart from his father. He's so apart from his heart. He's just as lost. He might even be more lost. He may be even more lost than the younger brother. You see, Christianity does not divide the world between good and bad. Jesus teaches here that that's the foundational flaw, actually. That's a mistake. Both sons are equally lost. Both sons are breaking the Father's heart. And sometimes the goodness, our goodness gets in the way. It makes us even more lost. So what does this text teach us about being found? How do we become found? Because that's what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is found. A few things. First, look at the Father. He's so gracious, so loving. He reaches out to both sons. The younger son gets the embrace. The younger son gets the kiss. He rushes out to the younger son. The repentance doesn't trigger the kiss. The kindness, the kiss, actually leads to the repentance, the confession. Now some of you, you're like the younger son. Here are a couple questions for you. Have you ever, in your life, experienced God in this way? God embracing you. God kissing you. Some of us have been so damaged in the church, we never felt God's embrace. I want you to take a moment and just trust the words in this text. God is a father. Experience the embrace of God. Experience the kiss of God. Experience him undignifying himself and rushing out to you. That is the father. That's the heart of the father. You're never going to seek him unless he first seeks you. The father has to rush out to you. If you notice here, here's a fact. The father also goes out to the elder son. Jesus, Jesus is telling this story to the Pharisees. Think about this. Jesus is telling this story to the very people who are actually going to eventually kill him. But he's telling them. He's inviting them. He leaves the story open-ended. He says, what is he saying? I want you to come home too. I'm giving you an opportunity. I'm inviting you, knowing that these Pharisees will later on kill him, have him killed. He says, I want you to come home. It's an open-ended story because he wants them to respond And in the same way, he wants us to respond. The second thing we see here is that um, look at the repentance of the younger son. He's got this formula. He's got this list. He says, this is how I'm going to get back. That's us. We tend to make lists. We think repentance is about lists because we think sin is about acts. So repentance is really once you've committed a bad act, right, repentance are lists to buffet us from those bad acts so we become good right that's what we do repentance is really our repentance it's flawed they're just promises our ways of working ourselves back in to the father it's becoming a hired hand the younger brother begins his repentance but he gets cut off he says father i've sinned against heaven and against you i'm no longer worthy to be called your son boom father cuts him off he never finishes his speech look at the grace of god Look at the love of the Father, and look at the love and the compassion and the grace of God. He's, we think that God is sit, standing at the end of the road, kind of tapping his feet. Some of you as teenagers, when you show up past your curfew, the light's on, and you kind of see the shadow at the driveway, kind of waiting, or maybe through the window. We think of God like that. And when you walk in, you're kind of creeping in, and you're kind of tiptoeing in. You don't want to say the wrong things, and, you're, and you're, you're, your heart is racing that's what we think of God when we think of God, when we look at God here, but that's not what's happening. The younger son never gets to finish his speech, and the father's running out to him, and he sees this son that has been broken by his sin. He sees this son that is experiencing the trauma of living in sin. And so he covers the son because he's lost everything. And he honors the son because he's lost honor and dignity. And he feeds the son, not just a morsel. He, fe- he celebrates. He wants the son to remember again what it was like as if he's never left home. That's the grace of the father. That's the love of God. The elder brother, he kind of has a list too. He says, I slaved for you. I never disobeyed for you. But when this son who squandered his property with, uh, his, his prop, your property with prostitutes comes home, why does he have this list? You have to get this. It's very, very important. When a moralist, when a legalist, when a person who's grown up in the church and doesn't really understand the heart of the church, you're an elder brother if that's the case, when a moralist commits sins, he feels bad. Without a doubt, he feels terrible. He repents. But when he repents, what does he do? He just maintains the list. He's still a moralist. He goes back to his list. When an irreligious person, a younger brother type, who's grown very distant from the father, when he sins and experiences conviction, he hears a sermon, he goes to a place, he hears something, it convicts him. He feels very guilty and he repents. He confesses and he repents. You know what he ends up doing a lot of times? The biggest flaw, he tries to become a moralist. He starts making up lists. That's the younger son. That's what happens. The the younger son says, I'm going to work my way back. I'm going to become a hired hand. He says, you know, I'm going to become like a moralist. I'm going to become like my elder brother. Listen, the difference between a true Christian and a moralist is what? Martin Luther used to say something kind of like this. He says, Christians repent of doing wrong. Yes, but they also repent of the good works that have damned them. You see? A Christian doesn't just repent of the wrong things they do. They repent of all the good things that they've done to manipulate the Father to get things from Him, you see? Because if I do this, then I'll be accepted. Because if I do this, then I will be loved. And that's why the anxiety and the anger are there, you see? That's what a Christian repents of, a true Christian. And when they repent, it changes everything. It changes everything. It changes the way you handle criticism. It changes the way you treat other people who are different from yourself. It changes the way elder sons look at younger sons and the way younger sons look at elder sons. That's why you have a genuine community because you're both lost and you've both been found, you see? It changes everything. Your view of suffering, the famine, you realize, you know, I thought it was something that God was using to punish me, but God would never do that because he's a father and the punishment has already been paid. The price has already been paid on the cross. If you really believe that, then you know that the suffering has meaning. The famine has meaning. It's to wake you up. It's to come to your senses. Not all suffering is like that. Some of us have suffered immensely. But that there is a purpose. You can trust the Father again. You see that? That's the whole point. And when you're able to handle criticism a certain way, when you're able to spend your wealth a certain way, you're not going to squander it. You're going to become radically generous because you've been given immensely by the Father. It is your inheritance you will give you're going to treat other people differently. When you do all these things, when you, you're going to view suffer, di- suffering differently, we call those things fruits of repentance. Rebirth! Nicodemus, an elder brother of sorts, he was a Pharisee, is sitting with Jesus late at night, and he's asking Jesus what he's about. And Jesus goes on this lesson. At one point, Jesus says, you don't understand, Nicodemus? You are Israel's teacher. You are the one who's supposed to teach people these things, and yet you still don't understand, he says. He says, it is like the Christian life is so new, so radically different, not something standing in between two lifestyles, but so radically different, a third way of viewing life. He says, it's like new birth. You must be born again. You got to lose the lists. That's how you start. Oh, You're obeying now because you realize how accepted you are. There's a difference between obeying somebody, doing something that really gets their heart because you know they love you and you love them. You're responding out of love for them. There's a very different, it's very, very different doing that. Think about your anniversary gifts. Husbands, we're terrible at anniversary gifts. Think about your anniversary gifts. There's a very, very big difference between, ah, Facebook has reminded me it's my anniversary and thus I must get my wife a gift. And so you order something on Amazon, it shows up in a package that your wife opens before you even get home. There's something very, very different from that, some mechanical way of giving than doing what? Thinking weeks in advance of making the day special because you know this will get at the heart of your spouse. You know it's going to get him. You know it's going to get her. There's a very, very big difference between doing something in such an organic way out of a response. You obey because you're loved. You obey because you're accepted. That's true obedience. That's true obedience. Not because you have lists. Not because there's some checklist you have to fulfill. But lastly, if we talked about looking at the Father and who He really is, if you look at losing our lists, and coming to obey out of our love for the other person, out of our love for the Father, out of our love for God. Lastly, we need to see the cost of the Father, what it took to bring us home, what it took to restore us. The Father's inheritance was wasted away. The younger son's inheritance was wasted away. The father didn't own anything anymore. I mean, he just didn't own anything anymore. In essence, what happened was he became bankrupt anything more that he gives is going to be given at a cost it's going to be given with great sacrifice the father says given the best robe whose robe was it given the ring whose ring was it given the sandals whose sandals were given the fattened calf given the party given the money whose party whose calf whose wealth was being sent spent it was all a sacrifice and when he speaks to the elder son, the last verse, what does he say? Son, everything I have is yours. It's absolutely true. we said this before because he literally divided his estate. And everything that was left, every, he gave away his, his share to the younger son. Everything that was left was left to the elder son. And so he's literally saying, everything I have is yours. The younger son was brought back at tremendous cost, not because he deserved it. In fact, he did not deserve it someone had to pay the cost. Sin costs on one hand. That's what this teaches us. If you want to kind of wrap your heart around that, think about the last time you've been betrayed by somebody in your life. You've been hurt deeply by somebody in your life when they walk back into your life and say, all right, you can trust me again. It's been some time. I understand. You know, let me back in. Would you let them back in? Think about it. Every one of us understands because we've been made in the image of God. We understand the cost of sin. When somebody wrongs you deeply, there is a deep resentment. There is a deep contempt that forms. You know what that is? That's the debt. That's the cost. That cost has to be paid for you to let them in. You see, the Father instantly pays the cost. When this younger son returns, it was really, everything, belonged to the, everything left belonged to the elder son. He's the one that's paying the price. That's why he's so unhappy. He says, this son doesn't deserve this. He's been running around with prostitutes, having a great time. He loses everything. How dare you do this? You should have consulted me at least. He owes you, don't you see? He hurt you. He damaged you. He owes you. He owes me now. That's the cost. He's furious about the younger brother. Why did Jesus give us such a terrible, what kind of elder brother is like this? Why did Jesus give us such a terrible picture of this elder brother? He's showing the Pharisees, and oftentimes he's showing us what they look like. This is what we can look like oftentimes. What would a true elder brother look like? A true elder brother would go out, look for the younger brother, search endlessly for this younger brother. Dead or alive, this younger brother is coming back with me. He would pay a cost, the the great cost, any cost that it would take to bring him back. He would offer his own life. You You ever read Pride and Prejudice? You have Darcy, who's really like an elder brother figure, you have Wickham, who is really an evil, younger brother figure, a licentious being. And he runs off with one of the daughters in the Bennett household. And he he's runs off and he's carousing and he's drinking and he's got gambling debts. In order to bring him back, what, is, what does Darcy have to do? They're at odds. They're actually enemies. What does he do? He goes off. He pays the debt. He pays the cost of this enemy. That's what he does. He offers his own life. This younger brother did not have a brother like that, but we do. We do have a younger brother like that. We do have a brother like that. Jesus so, shows us a terrible picture of an elder brother. So we would absolutely question and long and consider what a real one would be, who a real one can be for us. Jesus Christ is that true elder brother. In Hebrews chapter 2, the author says, Brothers. He starts out and he says, brothers. We are called, he calls us brothers. Jesus didn't just leave a worldly estate to go after us. He leaves a heavenly estate. He didn't just search for us at the cost of his wallet. He searched for us at the cost of his life. Jesus Christ left home not to distance himself from the Father. Not, he didn't say, Father, give me my estate so I can run. He left so he could, he could sacrifice his estate, you see? He didn't leave to distance himself from the Father. He left because he was intimate with the Father. He understood the Father's heart, you see. He did it to bring us back. He did it to make us intimate with the Father. And he searches for us in the famine, in our brokenness. You see that? He searches for us in the dryness, in the darkness. The light, John chapter 1, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. You see that? He searches for us in the famine. In fact, he was in the wilderness hungering and starving for 40 days. Do you remember that passage? Do you remember that story? He sacrificed his power. He sacrificed his identity. He sacrificed his kingliness. He sacrificed his authority. He sacrificed his wealth. He sacrificed his glory, and he became poor, and he became homeless. In fact, in Matthew, he says, foxes have holes, birds in the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. The Son of Man is homeless, and on the cross he was stripped naked, this son, he was clothed. Jesus Christ was stripped naked and he became sin. Why? So that we could be clothed in his righteousness. We're trying to clothe ourselves. That's what this passage is teaching us. We are constantly trying to clothe ourselves either by pursuing our desires or by pursuing goodness because we think that's the way to get what we want. And it's really just a patchwork. We're barely just trying to cover over our nakedness, our shame, our sin, and we're saying, this is the way I can get back in. This is the way I'm going to be accepted. Jesus Christ became naked. He was stripped naked. He who had everything. He who lacked nothing. He who loved the Father intimately, and he says, my, I and the Father, we are one, and yet he was stripped naked and became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. The younger brother He probably arrived naked. No clothes. Tattered at the least. Jesus Christ was stripped naked for us. The younger son, he got a ring. Jesus Christ got a crown of thorns. The younger son got sandals for his feet. Jesus Christ got nails for his feet. And do you know, the the older son, he was angry, right? Our true elder brother, Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 12 said, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He endured the crown. He endured the nails. You see? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Do you see that? On the cross, Jesus Christ cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, now I'm experiencing the ultimate famine. Now I'm experiencing the cosmic famine. Philippians chapter 2 said he emptied himself. He gave everything of himself. He emptied himself of everything. But most of all, on the cross, he emptied himself of his relationship with the Father. Sonship. So you could be sons because of his great love for us. So that God, so Jesus is Father. God himself will be your Father. This older brother, he says, I slave for you. He wanted the stuff. He wanted the things, not the Father. Jesus Christ said, I gave up everything for you as well. Into your hands I commit my spirit. He actually gave up the Father for us. Do you see that? The cross was the only time in the Gospels that Jesus Christ did not refer to God as his Father. Why? He was relinquishing his sonship so that you could be sons. So we could be sons. He became disowned by God. So that we could be owned by God. So we could be called sons. You're called to worship. In Galatians chapter 4. So God sent his son. Why? So we could have the full rights of sons. He doesn't say sons and daughters. He doesn't say children. You know why? Because to be called a daughter in Paul's time was to be rejected, actually. Women had no rights in ancient times. What the Apostle Paul is saying as he's speaking before women, even, he's saying, you who are lowly in the ancient culture, you can be a firstborn son in God's eyes. Sonship. You can have the full privilege and rights of sons. Do you see that? That should make everything a famine, compared to knowing Jesus Christ. That should make everything a famine, everything a brokenness, everything at best a mild blessing, a shadow of a blessing, compared to knowing Jesus Christ. That should make us come to our senses, wouldn't you say? Will you come to your senses? Come to your senses. I just said that three times. Let's pray.